This morning we're going to talk about parenting. I have a picture I want to show you. This is my wife Erin and our youngest daughter Maddie at a wedding recently. I was officiating uh, the wedding for a family member and they were sitting, um, sitting in the seats during the service and, and the photographer captured this moment. And we found it on Facebook and people were commenting under this picture about you know, how sweet it is that Erin and Maddie are kind of having this little moment together. But when Erin saw this picture, she knew immediately what was happening. She said, Maddie was starting to get really noisy, and I'm threatening her with her life in this picture. <laughs> Parenting is harder than it looks. <laughs> Parenting is different than it looks. You know, one of the evidences that parenting is so hard is that if you go to the Bible to look for an example of good parents, it's really hard to find them. Really hard. Abraham. Abraham took his son on a camping trip to kill him. I mean, that's pretty bad parenting. Isaac so preferred Esau to Jacob that it led to a, a, a strife that continues to affect our world today. Um, and then Jacob made the same mistake, so preferring Joseph to his ten older brothers that his older brothers sold him into slavery and pretended that he was dead. Uh, and then you, you move further in the, the Old Testament, you come to David, man after God's own heart. But if there's one thing David was terrible at, he was a terrible father with terrible consequences for him and his family to the point where one of his sons, Absalom, grew up to want to kill him. That's an indicator that you haven't done a great job, by the way, as a parent, when your kids grow up and want to kill you. Um, and then you get to the New Testament, you're thinking, maybe there's some hope now, and you come to Mary and Joseph. Surely Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph lost Jesus at the age of 12. I mean, like, there's just not a lot of great parents. Parenting is a, is a hard thing to do. And this morning, we're going to look at parenting, and I want to invite you not to check out because maybe you don't think of yourself as a parent at this point in your life. And I think this message has something for everyone, whether you're parenting little kids, older kids, or even if your children are grown, grandparents, adoptive parents, step-parents. I think it's for everyone. And one of the reasons why I think it's for everyone is because there's this principle in the Scriptures of spiritual parenting, where Paul considered Timothy to be a spiritual son. And I think all of us, as J Pastor Jason and Pastor Vicky reminded us earlier in the series, everyone needs a t Paul and everyone needs a Timothy. So whether your children are out of your home and long gone, or maybe you, you've never had any children, w or you're yet to have children, there's something that we can all learn this morning about what it looks like to pass on our faith to other people. And this morning we're going to look in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I just want to kind of give a disclaimer up front. I feel like I need to say this. This morning is going to be more of a talk and less of a sermon. And uh, 51 of the 52 Sundays you come here, you're going to hear a sermon from the Scripture. This morning you're going to hear a talk with biblical principles in it, but it's a little more of a talk. But I do want to start by looking at what happens here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Moses is nearing the end of his life, this great leader, and he gathers Israel together and he gives them a series of speeches. And by the time we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6, he's in his second speech and what we're going to see is he reminds the people of Israel of God's greatest commandment to them, but then he also contextualizes that commandment for them in, in parenting. Let's look at this together. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, and that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and your son, or you and your son and your son's son. See that? There's a passing off of the faith from the grandfather to the father to the son, and same from the grandmother to the, uh, to the mother to the daughter. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. 
Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord. This is the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And now in verse 7, he begins to contextualize it within families. You shall teach them diligently to your children. That adverb is really telling. Teach them not accidentally, not half-heartedly, not occasionally, but diligently teach these to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. What's Moses doing there? He's saying it's all of life. He's encompassing everything. Sit, stand, walk, rise, lie. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. It means they should always be before you. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This morning what I want to do is I want to share with you 12 rules for parenting. 12 rules for parenting. And I want to encourage you to avoid two traps right off the bat. Number one, to use this list as a way to grade yourself. Because it's going to get depressing. When I was writing this, I was like, ouch. <laughs> There's so many things I'm about to say that I don't do well, just to be honest with you. So avoid, uh, avoid the trap of grading yourself or grading yourself sort of retroactively, thinking about the things you wish you had done with your children who are now grown. That's not going to help you, but, it can, but these truths can help you moving forward. Here's the other th trap I want you to avoid. Avoid grading your parents right now based on these things. Don't think, well, my mom and dad were terrible at this one. They're so let's just set that aside, and let's just lean into the truth that God has for us this morning in this practical talk on parenting. So let's go 12 rules. We're going to have to move quick, or we're going we're to be late for lunch, and, and no one likes that less than me. All right, here we go. Number one rule for parenting, it starts with you. It starts with you. Have you noticed that there are already Christmas decorations in stores? They're already selling Christmas stuff. And listen, Thanksgiving's my favorite holiday. So I am, I am a bah humbug until the day after Thanksgiving. I am the Grinch until the day after Thanksgiving. I don't want to sing Christmas music. I don't want to watch Christmas movies. I want to enjoy Thanksgiving. And uh, my, actually this week I was in Missouri for some meetings and my girls sent me a message while I was there and they said, hey daddy, guess what we're doing while you're not here? They were watching Christmas movies already because they know that they can't do that if I'm in the house. And so Christmas is everywhere already, including there's these lists online which show you what the most popular gifts are this Christmas season for children. And one of the, I was looking at one of these lists this week, and one of the most pop, uh, popular gifts is a little baby shark doll that repeatedly sings the baby shark song. Now, if you don't know the baby shark song, that's because you are blessed and highly favored. <laughs> But if you know it, it haunts you in your sleep. And so I rebuke anyone from buying that for my youngest daughter, although she would love it. You know, the best gift, parents, the best gift you can give to your child is a spiritually healthy you. The best gift you can give to your child is a spiritually healthy you. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. You can say whatever you want, but what you do always trumps what you say. And that is the thing with kids, right? That they're like little versions of ourselves walking around throwing our own flaws back into our face, right? The things that bother us about our kids, guess who they got it from? Mom, right? Or, or, or dad sometimes, or dad sometimes. Aaron's not in this service, so I can get away with that. She doesn't listen to the recording, so she won't know. Don't tell her. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. 
And listen, God is the source of all good things, but if you're a parent, God will give good things to your kids through you. He wants to, but you can't give what you don't have. A lot of parents want to give their kids things that they don't actually have. A vital, vibrant spiritual life. A hunger for God. Patience with others. Respect. Kindness. Healthy self-image. Parents, if you don't have it, you can't give it. And what that means is that what Paul says to Timothy to pay close attention to your life and to your doctrine, it's important for us. And what it also means, by the way, is this. Self-care is not selfish. Self-care is not selfish. Because parents, if you don't take care of yourself, if you don't have a healthy spiritual life, you cannot give to your children what you don't personally possess. It starts with you. Rule number two, realize you're it. You ever play the game tag growing up? Everybody's trying to not be it. The moment you have a child, you just got tagged. And you're it. And your children will have other teachers. They will have other friends. They will have other influences. But they won't have another mom. And they won't have another dad. And what this means is we can't give to our family our leftovers. I'm guilty of this. Going to work, working hard all day. You come home. You're tired. You're spent. Eat a delicious dinner. What do you want to do? You just want to relax. And you end up giving your very best to work and your leftovers to your family. But you know, think about your work. Someone's going to have your job after you. Hopefully not soon, but someday. Someone's going to have your job after you. The people that you're over, that you manage, that you're a boss of, they're going to have another boss someday. But your children are not going to have another you. You're it. Realize you're it. And make the effort to bring your very best into the house. Rule number three, be present. I think this is a great challenge today, greater than ever because of technology. You know there's a difference between being in the same space with somebody and actually being present with them. We're not great at that anymore. And I remember I was speaking at a, or no, I wasn't speaking, I was at a conference and a good friend of mine, his name's Tyler, he's a pastor of a great church in Tacoma, Washington. He was talking about parenting and he said, you don't want your kid's lasting image of you to be this. And then he took his phone out of his pocket and he held it up to his face like this. And I remember thinking, oh, that really hurts. But you don't want your kids later in life when they think about what was mom and dad like growing up? You don't want them, the first image to come into their mind is you with your face buried in your phone. I'm probably more guilty of this than many of you. But we have to be intentional as parents about being present. One of the things that we, we try to get better at in our home is to make sure that we, we're very careful about the times that we lose ourselves as a family in our devices. Because it can happen. You look around your room and everybody's in an iPad or an iPhone or a laptop or a screen. And nobody's looking at each other. And nobody's engaging with each other. And it takes intentionality, parents, to be present. It takes things like playing board games so you can be face-to-face -face and watching them. And so... This is an important thing is for us to be present. Kids are, kids are, have you noticed kids are desperate for attention? You ever heard a kid, mom, 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 mother, 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 right? Some of you moms are like, yes, I hear that all the time. They're desperate for your attention. And, and dads, especially those of you that have daughters, I have three girls, 11, eight, and five dads. Those of you that have daughters, your daughters are desperate for your attention. And if I don't give my daughters attention, they're going to go looking for it somewhere else. It's important that we're present, that we're engaged. Rule number four, get to know each child. Wouldn't it be nice if a manual came with your kids? Like, here's what you should do, here's what you shouldn't do. And wouldn't it be nice if all your kids, those of you that have more than one child, were the same? 
But how many of you learned that kids are very different from each other? Very, very different from each other. And uh, my oldest is an extrovert, and my next daughter is an introvert, and there's lots of different ways that they are unique to each other. It's important for me to realize each of them is an individual, and each of them deserves my individualized attention. So I'm not going to parent Caroline like I'm going to parent Lilia. But when I'm lazy and spent, I tend to just parent them all the same way. But we need to get to know our children. Parents, remain curious about your own children. Get inside their minds and ask questions and ask follow-up questions. And when my daughters ask me things, I like to ask them back first, why do you think that's true? Because I want to understand them and I want to hear from them. I don't want to assume that I know why they did what they did. And I don't ever want to assume that I know why they f- how they feel about something. That's one of the quickest ways to make somebody feel insignificant, is to assume that you know how they feel about a situation. Take the time to listen and to ask. Get to know each child. And the last thing I want to say about rule four, and we could spend a whole sermon on this, and maybe we will sometime, is get to know the idols of your children's hearts. So we, we all struggle with idols, and an idol is simply something that we love and trust in more than Jesus. But different people have different types of idol structures in their lives. And so you might have one kid whose idol, the thing that they want the most in life, is approval. And this type of kid actually is kind of easy to parent because they want to make you proud. And they want your approval. But then you might have another child over here who their heart idol, what they want most in the world is independence. And they want to be strong and independent. They don't want to need others. This kid needs you all the time. This kid doesn't want to need you. This kid's nightmare is not having you. And this kid's nightmare is having you around all the time. And you might think, well, what's the deal? The deal is, is they have very different idol structures in their heart. And here's what our danger is if we're lazy. If I have a child, and I do have one of my children, who has a bit of an approval idol, she desperately wants approval uh, and to know that she's done well. What I'll do if I'm, if I'm lazy and if I'm not paying attention is I will leverage her approval idol to get her to behave. Now imagine this. Imagine that I have an approval idol. Far-fetched, I know. But imagine, imagine, imagine that I do. Here's the vicious cycle. I need her to behave because that's how I feel approved of by other parents, especially as a pastor. I need to have kids that are well-behaved. So now my need for approval causes me to leverage her need for approval to get her to behave. And here's all we've done. We've actually made their idols stronger. We've strengthened the grip of that thing on their heart. So instead what we do is we expose those idols as saying, that's not what you actually need. What you actually need is to find that you've been approved of by God through Jesus and rest in his work. You don't need my approval most. So instead of enslaving them to my approval, pointing them to Jesus and what he's done for them and seeing Jesus to be more beautiful, more sure, more wonderful, more true than the things that their hearts desire most. This takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work, a lot of attentiveness, and it takes the help of the Spirit. But it's important that we lean into this uh, idea. Okay, rule number five, every moment matters. This is what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy chapter 6. When you sit, when you stand, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise, all of life. Listen, parents, and those of you that have, you know, some of you maybe are not parents, but you have nephews, you have nieces, you have grandchildren, you have, you have others in your life. Every moment is a discipleship moment. For a long time, the church thought discipleship is what happens in classrooms when we teach out of curriculums. That can be discipleship, but that's certainly not all of discipleship. Jesus didn't get his 12 men into classrooms once a week and say, let's do Sunday school hour. What did he do? He did life with them 24-7, everywhere he went. And every moment, parents, matter. Sometimes as adults, we get caught on the destination, but the kids, it's the journey. 
It's the moments in between. It's not where you're going. It's that time going there. It's the time spent in the car with your children. Those moments matter. And here's the terrifying thing about children. They're always watching you. They're always watching and they're always learning. How do you handle yourself in traffic? Ouch. How do you talk about other people? How do you treat people who think differently than you and have a different perspective on life than you? How do you live out your faith? Remember, what you do always trumps what you say. How many of you have ever had, don't raise your hand, you've ever had a boss that says one thing and does something else and eventually you, you realize this is what he or she really values, even though he or she is saying this. And parent, kids know that. They can see through that. Every moment matters. And let me say this, one more thing about this rule. Your words, your words, parents, have so much power. The Bible talks that the power, says that the power of life or death is in the tongue. The way we speak about our children, the way we speak to our children, the things that we speak over our children, and things that we pray for our kids, it's powerful. Your kids should hear you praying life into them and over them regularly. And if you haven't been doing it, start today. God can use the words that you speak in those moments. Rule number six, be consistent. Be consistent. It's amazing how kids can forget to tie their shoes, forget to pack their lunch, forget to turn their light off, forget to brush their teeth, but they'll never forget a promise you made. If I told my girls three years ago in passing, hey, someday maybe we'll get a dog, they're going to hold me to that for the rest of my life. <laughs> they don't forget. Parents, we have to be consistent with our word. We also have to be consistent with discipline. I recognize there's lots of different opinions about what discipline might look like, but here's what we should all agree on, consistency, consistency. If there's a mom and a dad in the home, it's important that you're on the same page and you're consistent. You know what kids are, intuitively, they are experts at the divide and conquer approach. They pit mom against dad, they ask mom, and mom says no, and then they run and they ask dad. You ever been there? So the consistency of being on the same page and supporting one another with the discipline. The Here's another way in which we need to be consistent in discipline. Never discipline out of anger. If you find yourself very angry, don't, don't make a discipline decision in that moment. Give yourself time and then choose a disciplinary action. But do not discipline out of anger. Discipline out of a desire to correct and restore and see relationship restored. Here's another thing. I, I think we have to be careful about correcting kids in a way or disciplining kids in a way that puts shame on them publicly embarrasses them. I don't even like to discipline my daughters in front of each other. I like to separate them from each other. So if I have something very hard to say to one of them, I want to say it just to them. I don't want to embarrass them in front of their siblings. And I don't want them to, I don't want them to correlate discipline with shame or discipline with rejection. So I don't like to push them away from me very long either during a time of discipline. There are times where they go to their room, but we try not to let it be a sort of time where they, they begin to think, if I do something wrong, mom and dad don't want me around anymore. That's a dangerous thing to communicate because they begin to communicate, they begin to correlate discipline with rejection. We have to be consistent with our spiritual disciplines. Parents, if you love and follow Jesus, your kids should see you loving and following Jesus. You know, they should wake up and see you. I, I, this is an example. This is not what you have to do. Here's an example. They wake up and see you with the scriptures open. They wake up and they hear you praying. They see you giving. They see you singing. They see you loving Jesus. The number one thing I want my daughters to know about me is that I love Jesus and that I know that he loves me. Out of anything else, if I could just let them know one thing about me, there's only one thing that they remember about me years from now, it's that he loved Jesus. He loved Jesus. 
And how, do they, how are they going to know if they don't see that consistency in their lives? One more thing. Let me put my sort of stereotypical pastor hat on for a minute and say, I think it's important in parenting that we're consistent in our church engagement. I really do. And I don't apologize for saying that. I believe it's important. And the reason why I believe it's important is because whatever we communicate to our children is optional. They will interpret as unimportant. If it's optional to gather with God's people, then they will interpret it to be unimportant. And so you have to ask yourself this if you're a mom and a dad or a single parent. How important is the gathering of the saints? And if it's important to you, then what you do is always going to trump what you say. So sort of that regular, and I know that people work on Sunday. I understand, there's, I understand there can be situations that prevent people from being as regular as they want to be. That's not my point this morning. My point is, is that be careful about what you consider to be optional and what you consider to be important. Right? Okay, number seven rule. We have to model repentance. Don't hide our mistakes. Here's my philosophy. The, to the extent you publicly sin in front of your child, to that extent you should publicly repent. They should see that you are someone who knows how to repent. And they should learn that repentance is an ongoing, normative, daily part of the Christian life. You know that, right? Repentance is not something you did in an altar at a camp when you were eight years old and you're, and you're good to go. If you're a believer, you're always repenting. Because repenting is always a redirecting by God's grace and his spirit of our hearts from lesser gods back to Jesus. And we need to do that every single day because our hearts always drift towards idols and lesser things. But your kids need to see you do that because otherwise if they don't see you repenting and if they don't see that repenting is a normal part of the Christian life, they will hide their mistakes from you because they will begin to think that mistakes are fatal and messing up is the end. But for Christians, mistakes are not fatal. Messing up is not the end. Because of what Jesus did, being a sinner is no longer fatal, but it's the denial that you're a sinner that is fatal to our hearts. And so how do we repent? And one of the things I do with, I've tried to do with my daughters is that when I repent before them, what I'll say, so let's just pick some example that, of course, never happens. I lose my temper in traffic. Never has happened. But let's just, let's just say. And so I, I yell. Or they're making too much noise in the back, and I, and, I, and I snap at them. And then afterwards, I realize I sinned. Like, that was wrong. There was something in that moment wrong in my heart. And so I'll sit with them, and I'll, I'll sit with them one at a time, and I'll say, hey, I want you to know that earlier when Daddy did X, Y, and Z, uh, I want you to know that that, that was wrong, that I sinned, and I'm sorry. And here's why I did it. And this is so important. It's one thing to say I'm sorry. It's another thing to help your children understand why sin happens in the first place. So I would say something like this. The reason why I got so angry at you is because I felt like you weren't respecting me. And in that moment, this is the language we use in our house to help our girls. In that moment, I was trying to fill my heart up with, with being respected. My heart wasn't filled up with who Jesus is and what he's done for me and the goodness and the grace and the glory of God. Instead, I was trying to fill my heart up with you respecting me. Or I was, here's another example. I was trying to fill up my heart by controlling something that I couldn't control. And because I felt like I couldn't, all of a sudden I started to, I lost my temper. And, and, this, and what I'm doing is I'm helping my daughters understand that repentance is never just about what you've done. It's always about why you did what you did. Who and what you were trusting in that moment. So we have to model repentance. Rule number eight, protect, then prepare. 
There's some, there's some new parents in our church. It's always fun. We have a young church, and there's always, uh, we have actually a very diverse church, but we have some young families here, and uh, it's good to see the Trumbulls first time back with their little baby boy, Micah. Uh, no touching him, no kissing his face, right? None of that yet. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's when you, they're having this experience right now. When you have a newborn for the first time, all of a sudden the whole world looks dangerous to you, right? <laughs> Every little thing's a choking hazard. Every, uh, every coffee table is a, is a possible trip to the emergency room. Every stairwell is a threat, right? Even strawberries and peanut butter now are off the list, right? So there's all sorts of things. And then you take your child to the home of somebody who doesn't have little kids anymore, and you look around their house, and you're like, well, you're a monster. Like, are you trying to kill my child? Like, look at this house. This is not safe. And, and, and really, when your kids are little, the vast majority of your responsibility is just to keep them going, like just to protect them from all the dangers in this world. And then as they get older, you begin to protect them from other things, the messages that this world would want to tell them. You start to protect them from the lies out there. You start to protect them from certain information that maybe they're too young to know, right? But at some point in parenting, we have to shift from protecting to preparing. I don't know when it will happen for you, but I'm right there now with my two oldest, where we're still protecting them from certain things, but we're also trying to prepare them for certain things. If all you do is protect until they're out of the house, then you've made them very vulnerable and unprepared for life. They're very sheltered. But if, all you, do, if you don't protect them ever and you just let them experience it all, then they're overexposed and they're too young to process certain information. And so there is a balance here. And how do we get help with this? We need the help of the Spirit to help us know, but we need to protect and then prepare. Number nine, rule number nine, love your spouse. I said earlier that the best gift you can give your child is a spiritual, healthy you. The second best gift you can give your child is loving your spouse. I recognize that in our community and in our church, there's many single parents, and, and single parents are my, my heroes. Whatever situation's got them to be a single parent, I don't know, it's fine, but what I know is they carry an extreme weight. I pray for single parents and those who carry that weight. And so maybe for you, you're thinking, well, this isn't really relevant to me. I don't really have a spouse to love. Well, two thoughts. Number one, you may someday. God may bring someone into your life. And it's important if that person comes that you, that obviously you love your spouse. That's a gift you give to your child. But the second thing I would say is this. Even if the, you know, even if the other person is no longer in your home and no longer, you're not married to them anymore, even the way you talk about them can influence your children. Even the way that you... Um, speak of, you know, that's all really important. There's some important principles here in the way that we talk about people, even people who aren't always in our lives anymore. But for those of you that are in a home together, husbands and wife, loving your spouse is the second best gift you can give to your child after a spiritually healthy you. And this actually involves choosing to love your spouse sometimes over your children, not letting your children rise to a point where they split you and your spouse. And there are times in which, well, I have begun to say to my girls, Instead of, usually when I'm referencing Aaron to my girls, I'll say your mother. But I've started, I heard a teaching, and it's, I'm, I'm considering it, and I'm starting to use it a little bit, where I say you need to communicate to your children that moment that it's this relationship that matters most. So instead of saying your mother, why would you talk to your mother that way? Now I'll say, why would you talk to my wife that way? That's different, isn't it? And what I'm saying is I have a relationship here that in some ways, it certainly preceded you, but it in some ways supersedes you in a way, because the covenant that I've made was with her. Children are a blessing, and we have a responsibility to them, but ultimately, the best thing we can do for our children is love our spouses 
and model for them unconditional love and create a safe environment. All right, we need to finish. Rule number 10, if you're a parent, you gotta ask for help. <laughs> you gotta read, you gotta learn, you gotta grow, you gotta be in community with other parents, learn from other parents. You know, I think about many of you spent four years, six years, seven years preparing for the work that you do. Some of you, maybe it wasn't college, but you spent all those years as an intern somewhere or learning a craft and a skill. How much time do you spend on your parenting skills? How many years have you spent developing yourself as a parent? We don't, but parenting is so important. And so we need to be, if you ever need a recommendation, I know a, a lot of great parenting books that I can gladly recommend to you, but we have to be willing to humble ourselves and ask for help. You know, nobody starts out wanting to be a bad parent. Everybody starts out thinking, I'm gonna be the best dad. I'm gonna be the best mom, but it's hard. It's really hard. We have to ask for help. Rule number 11, love unconditionally. Elizabeth Stone, a teacher and author, said this, making the decision to have a child is momentous. It is to decide forever to have your heart go walking around outside your body. You ever felt that? Your children are a piece of you, walking around outside of you. What does this mean? If you're a parent, prepare yourself for the pain. There will be pain in parenting, pain of rejected love, the pain of decisions that you wouldn't have made, the pain of difficult conversations and difficult situations. How do we love our children unconditionally as they hurt us at times and break our hearts? The only way we do it is to remind ourselves regularly of how Jesus has loved us unconditionally. That he extended love to us, as Annie said earlier, while we were still sinners. While we were far from God and didn't have a thought towards him, he pursued us and he loved us and he chased us down. And if he loved us that way, that gives us a source from which we can love our children unconditionally. Now, let me make a really important clarification before we get to the last rule and finish. There's a massive difference between loving unconditionally and loving ultimately. Our ultimate love only belongs to God. And there is a major issue, even in the church, especially in this community, probably in the suburbs of Clay, where children are actually the gods in the home. And parents are looking to children to fill their hearts with peace, joy, meaning, purpose. Children become their functional saviors, and they rest all their hope in them, and they don't know how to function when life doesn't go the way it should and when their children don't live the way they want them to live. We need to give unconditional love to our children, but not ultimate love to our children. Ultimate love is only reserved for Jesus. For God. And giving your children unconditional love is very helpful. It's one of the most helpful things you can do. But giving your children your ultimate love is one of the most harmful things you can do to them. Because now you've placed on them a burden that they can't carry, that they somehow have to meet all of your emotional needs, that you have to finish, you have to live your life through them. And that's such an unhealthy way to do. So we need to, by the help of the Spirit, not love our children ultimately, but love them unconditionally. And then number 12, the last rule is this. Take a breath. Trust God with your kids. You have to trust God with your kids. I'm going to say something that's going to give a lot of you maybe some relief. You can't change your children. You can't change them. You can't even change yourself. You can't save them. You can't make them love Jesus. You can't force them to love Jesus. You can't indoctrinate them into salvation. You can't guilt them into it. You can't convince them. So what do we do with that? We learn to trust God with our children. He's got better plans for them than we do. 
As much as you want your child to know and love Jesus, some of you have prodigals in your home, as much as you want your child to come back to serve Jesus, you know what the Holy Spirit wants that so much more for them? And when you can't get to your kid, your whole, the Holy Spirit can get to your kid. And when you can't reach them, God is always reaching them. And when you give up and you throw in the towel and you say, I, I'm just, I got nothing left, God hasn't, done, God hasn't done that. He doesn't grow weary. He's faithfully working. So let your heart be encouraged this morning. Can you imagine if we didn't have a faithful father that we could trust in, to trust with our children, with our grandchildren, with our nephews, with our nieces, with those that we love? We can trust in God. You know why? Because he's faithful, he's good, and he's near. He's always near. And his plans are best.